from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. The attempted suicide bombing in New York's Port Authority on Monday, December 11th at 7.20 in the morning sent a stark warning. It was a reality check of something experts had warned about for decades. A person trying to detonate a suicide vest in the middle of a crowded U.S. city. You know, although this was uh, a unsuccessful operation, look at the disruption and the chaos that it caused to New York City. And it wasn't just a wake-up call for New York City. Cities like Washington, D.C., New York City, and Chicago. And that's why a very important tool, which will expire if it's not reauthorized by Congress by the end of the year, is so important. 702 is a section of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that allows the government to collect the communications of individual foreigners located outside the United States who are of some foreign intelligence value, so a terrorist suspect, somebody who might be a spy. That's Justice Department Associate Attorney General Rachel Brand. We'll hear the full story from her. And we'll talk with terrorism experts Robert Bayer and Fred Burton about what's looming and, of course, what it means for you. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On Monday, December 11th, 2017, a 27-year-old man of Bangladeshi descent and origin triggered a strapped-on suicide vest inside a crowded pedestrian tunnel under New York's Port Authority, just as the holiday season approached. He was allegedly upset about Christmas posters inside that very corridor that he targeted. For some reason, the bomb didn't work the way he had intended it to, thus granting everyone around him a reprieve from the horror that terrorists like those in the ISIS organization, which the bomber Akayad Ula pledged allegiance to, had threatened. It once again highlighted the general danger that terrorists pose, the specific dreadful nature of a suicide bomber, and one other thing. The Justice Department's concern that Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act will expire on December 31st unless reauthorized. We'll talk with Associate Attorney General Rachel Brand about that. But first, Fred Burton, Vice President of Intelligence at Stratfor, joins us to set the scene for what happened in New York and give us the background. Fred, give us your view on what happened with that device. Fortunately, I think it was a very unsophisticated bomb maker, JJ, uh, but that does not diminish the threat. Uh, I think that uh, it's been a long time since we've actually seen a potential suicide bomber on U.S. soil. Uh, So uh, I know that that will be a topic of great concern to the FBI and uh, the different JTTFs around our nation as a result of this. So why do you feel like this would be such a great discussion to have right now? I think because of the MO of the attack, JJ, looking at uh, 
just the use of suicide bombers on uh, U.S. public transportation systems that you and I have chatted about for years. Uh, you know, although this was uh, a unsuccessful operation, look at the disruption and the chaos that it caused to New York City. And then imagine if this had been the kind of attack like we saw uh, in London on uh, 7-7. But the use of the uh, potential suicide device as a bombing mechanism to me is troubling. Uh, And I think that uh, that's something that's going to raise uh, all kinds of concerns for uh, departments saddled with trying to protect public transportation systems from subways to buses. There was a previous attempt on U.S. soil in Oklahoma, 2005, correct? There was the OU bomber case, uh, and this was an individual by the name of Joel Henricks, who uh, was a Muslim convert, uh, and he actually tried to get into a University of Oklahoma football game uh, and then walked out and uh, uh, the device uh, detonated on a park bench. Uh, and he appeared to be waiting for a transportation bus. Fortunately, uh, he only killed himself in that endeavor. But uh, if that had gone off inside that football stadium, you can only imagine uh, the kind of reaction. So that was 12 years ago. This is now. So what is the message to terrorists and to the rest of the world? Well, that you can be successful in carrying out one of these devices. Uh, it all depends on how you want to um Uh, describe success. Uh, And I I think that, uh, you know, the terrorist organizations such as ISIS will view this as uh, a successful operation. Uh, I think um, when you look at it from the counterterrorism perspective, uh, it doesn't bode well, JJ, uh, just due to the volume of people that that travel via bus and rail uh, here in the United States, just going about their daily life in cities like Washington, D.C., New York City, Uh, in Chicago. So what should we expect moving forward? I think that uh, we'll see more of this kind of MO. Um, If you look at uh, utilizing the confines with the blast effect of this kind of device uh, in a subway in an underground kind of uh, containment where the blast effect uh, goes up and bounces back and sideways, uh, I think that that MO won't be lost on uh, groups like the Islamic State. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see some uh, propaganda in one of their next uh, magazines along these lines as a result of this. Uh, From the counterterrorism perspective, uh, you can only do so much. Uh, Obviously, you're in an enhanced uh, security awareness period anyway with the holidays. Uh, but uh, you'll see uh, NYPD, you know, activate their Hercules teams, put more bomb dogs in, in transportation systems and so forth. Uh, but really, J.J., there's only so much you can do. Uh, you know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, without uh, human intelligence uh, or snitches or sources telling you exactly what a lone actor like this might be up to, that it's very, very difficult to try to stop it. You can only uh, contain and mitigate the event once it unfolds. That's Fred Burton, Vice President of Intelligence at Stratfor. Thanks, Fred. My pleasure. Thank you. And now we turn to what is the real feature of this podcast, and that is a conversation about Section 702. Joining us is Rachel Brand, Associate Attorney General at the Department of Justice, to give us an understanding of what it's all about. Break down for us what 702 is. 702 is a section of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. 
that allows the government to collect the communications of individual foreigners located outside the United States who are of some foreign intelligence value, so a terrorist suspect, somebody who might be a spy, somebody who has other foreign intelligence value. So it's a targeted collection program for people located outside the United States. Why is it important now that we're talking so much about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and 702 specifically? Well, the reason we're talking about it so much right now is because 702 is going to expire on December 31 if Congress doesn't reauthorize it. even if the reauthorization date weren't coming up, though, it would be an extremely important tool that everybody would be focused on because, as you know, terrorist threat aren't, threats aren't going away. Uh, all of the usual needs for foreign intelligence are just as relevant now as they ever were. And we know from experience that intelligence gathered under Section 702 is extremely valuable. Uh, DNI Clapper in the last administration and DNI Coates in this administration have both called it the crown jewel uh, of intelligence tools. It, for example, was responsible for the intelligence that enabled the government to intercept Mr. Zazi as he was driving to blow up the New York subway system. Uh, He was communicating with folks outside the United States targeted under 702, looking for instructions on how to build a bomb. We know that intelligence gathered under 702 has been useful for force protection for the Defense Department. So ISIS plans to attack U.S. service members abroad. Those kinds of plans have been uncovered under 702. Uh, We know that 702 uh, helped us find Haji Imam, the second-in-command in in ISIS, who was eventually uh, killed. But it's, it's valuable for a wide range of purposes, and it's many folks in the intelligence community think it's our most uh, valuable tool. So we, we really can't afford to have it expire. You clearly heard her refer to the fact that Section 702 was responsible for stopping Najibullah Zazi in 2009 from blowing up the New York subway system. It's more than ironic that what took place on Monday, December 11th, 2017, was eerily similar to what Najibullah Zazi had planned to do. Akiyayad Ula had strapped explosives to his body and penetrated New York's subway system, ridden on the subway system for more than an hour, arrived at Times Square, and was transiting the Port Authority in New York when he detonated his suicide vest. Was there any information available about him? This guy came out of nowhere in the sense that he was inspired by the Islamic State rather than in touch with it. I've seen no evidence unless the Bangladeshis come up with something that he went home, got orders, instructions, and the rest of it. That's former CIA case officer Robert Bayer explaining why ULA was essentially a clean skin and why Section 702 is so important. We'll hear from him and again from Rachel Brand when we come back on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Before the break, we were talking about the fact that the New York Port Authority bomber essentially was what's known as a clean skin. There didn't appear to be any information out there on social media or on record suggesting he was a terrorist or sympathized with terrorists. But yet, he turned out to be one. That's another reason why Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is so important. Before we get back to Rachel Brand, former CIA case officer Robert Bayer 
explains why he's so concerned about what happened with Ula. The important thing is this guy came out of nowhere in the sense that he was inspired by the Islamic State rather than in touch with it. I've seen no evidence unless the Bangladeshis come up with something that he went home, got orders, instructions, and the rest of it. Uh, I mean, I, there, there's a good news side to this story, and that is that the vest didn't get go off, of course, um, because you know we'd all feared that people would come back from Syria and Iraq knowing how to make explosives, know how to make these vests, and start killing themselves and a lot of other people in the United States. Well, that's clearly hasn't happened so far. So this is a wannabe, um, uh, you know, there, there was, I don't think there's any way to, to pinpoint this guy. You know, he's on Facebook, uh, you know, going after Trump. But, you know, those kinds of threats, complaints, and the rest of them are like a fire hose for the National Security Agency and the FBI. They can't tell them apart. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think that's very, I mean, it's, it, 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 I, I hate to put this as a good news story, but if that's what they got, this movement is dying out. Yeah. So here's the question. So it appears as though he was a clean skin. Tell us exactly what a clean skin is and how he fit into that profile. Uh, a clean skin is somebody that has no email, no telephone contact, no contact in wherever they came from if they're a foreigner uh, with the Islamic State, no recorded contact. So in the databases, there's there's really there's there's nothing. There's no suspicions for the FBI to go on. It's so much easier for the FBI to look into somebody if there's an actual tip and that would be an email for instance to a known islamic state sympathizer and like i said so far we haven't seen that and one of the things that i've noticed listening to what you were saying regarding the bangladeshi authorities is that they have said that they have not found any record of him being in being in their counterterrorism database another element of why he you know seems to represent a clean skin talking with doj about it they're saying very clearly, this is another reason why Section 702 needs to be reauthorized urgently. Your thoughts? I, you know, I think right now the, the, we're, we're, there's not a chance in the world it's not going to be reauthorized uh, with this administration, with people still worried about, terrified of terrorism. Um, you know, any tool you give people right now uh, and if the Department of Justice says they need 702, then they need it. The fact that this took place in New York, the fact that ISIS is going to get a hold of it, terror groups are going to get a hold of it and declare a great victory here. What are your, what's your recommendation first for how the intelligence and security communities should proceed from here and your recommendations as well for just general people? My recommendations, if you're worried about terrorism, stay out of crowded areas like these tunnels in the, in the, in the system, because most people, that's not even practical. I, you know, you could be like in Northern Ireland, you just got to live with it. And this goes back also to, to Trump's, you know, attack on immigration, legal immigration. If this kid had not been let in on a, I guess he came in on a P5 visa, would we not be faced with this? Would there be something indigenous? You know, all of these attacks, it, you know, it's something had to do with, with immigrants and, you know, a couple more of these and, 
you know, people are going to join Trump in this. And I, 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 you know, I think one of the big mistakes, JJ, is we just don't see what's driving the popularity, what's left of it, of Trump, and that a lot of it has to do with foreigners, immigration, and the other. Uh, and it's it's pushing into a lot of other issues like racism. Um, you know, and it's it's a problem because in Bangladesh, there's no way that you can vet a young man or a young woman coming into this country simply because their databases aren't very good and you have large populations there that are susceptible to the Islamic State. I mean, it's, it's a real dilemma. I mean, what, what do you do? Yeah. Shutting off immigration destroys the United States. Uh, keeping it open and having more attacks will undermine our democracy. The dilemma that Robert Bayer spoke of is another reason why Section 702 is such a hot topic on Capitol Hill and in Washington now, and such an urgently needed tool that the intelligence community is hopeful will be reauthorized. Now, back to our conversation with Rachel Brand, Associate Attorney General at the Department of Justice. Well, it is my understanding that it needs to be reauthorized and Congress is responsible for the reauthorization. And there are some very intelligent people in Congress. And I'm wondering why it is, based on what it is you've explained to me, that there is this risk of it expiring in the first place. Well, I am hopeful that we will get an authorization by the end of the year. Uh, the House Intelligence Committee, chaired by Mr. Nunes, just marked up a, a bill uh, just just now, and we're taking a look at the details of it, but we think that'll be a good vehicle, and we're hopeful that that will get done by the end of the year. We've really spent a lot of time, and I personally have spent a lot of time up on the Hill meeting with individual members of Congress and talking through them, with them, the value of the program, how it works, addressing any concerns that they might have. So I, I'm hopeful that, that we'll get to the place that we need to be, but uh, we're certainly spending all the time that we need to to get there. Yeah, again, though, w why are you having to go, is that just protocol that you're doing this, or is this, you're actually having to explain to folks, okay, this is what this is, like you're doing with us, this is what this does, this is why it's important. Is, is that what you're having to do, or is there another matter, is there some other resistance to this? Well, there's been a lot of, there have been some privacy concerns raised about Section 702. Those began to be raised after Mr. Snowden uh, leaked details about the program back, what is that, two, two, three years ago now? 2013. Um, yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of misunderstanding at the time about what Section 702 was. And it was often confused with the Section 215 bulk telephony metadata program, uh, which was, in fact, a, a bulk program. And 702 is very different from that. But because the programs were leaked around the same time, they were often confused. They were certainly confused in the press. Reporting would often conflate the two. Uh, and I, I think some some members of Congress have um, have also kind of lump them together in their mind. Now, I spent almost five years on the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. I just, my term there just ended in February. And after the Snowden leaks, President Obama asked us to do an in-depth investigation of Section 702, which we did. And remember, the Peak Lab is five members, Senate-confirmed members, ranging from conservative Republicans to liberal Democrats at that time. And we took a very in-depth look at 702, spent lots of time up at Fort Meade with all the classified details, and unanimously concluded that the program was legal and highly effective and is, in fact, a targeted program. Now, we did recommend a number of tweaks to the program to ameliorate potential 
privacy impacts. Uh, if, for example, a targeted terrorist abroad emails a U.S. person, that email uh, would be collected. And there are rules around the program that, that help ameliorate the privacy impacts of that. We recommended some changes, and the government made all of those changes in, in whole or part. So we think that the rules that govern 702 are already very uh, protective of privacy, and those are some of the conversations that we're having with members of Congress. What's your feeling about whether this will get done? I heard what you said a few moments ago about you've been working on this and you're hopeful, but what's your feeling about where it stands right now? Well, with the markup in the House Intelligence Committee, I feel better. I think that that's a vehicle that may be that may work out well. Uh, I guess we'll see. I mean, how these things play out on the floor of the House and Senate and then potentially in conference, those are alleged strategy questions that might be above my above my pay grade. But uh, I, I feel okay about the, the, the status right now, but certainly we're going to keep doing everything we can to impress upon Congress how important it is to get this done before the end of the year. On the off chance, or even a greater chance, that this doesn't, for some reason, get done, by the end of the year, and it does expire. What does that mean? What essentially happens at that point? Well, at that point, we would have to start winding the the program down, and uh, we would very soon thereafter start losing valuable intelligence. You know, we start becoming blind to, to some of the intelligence that we can gather now. You know, and there is just no... At the moment, there is just no legal authority that is an adequate substitute for this authority, so it would be extremely damaging. What message would that send to bad actors? Well, that's a really good question. It's hard to get inside the mind of, of, of those folks. I mean, I think it, it could embolden them, I mean, uh, but, you know, that's anyone's guess. I, I certainly know that on our end of it, uh, we would be very concerned about not knowing what we don't know. You know, what, what are we not, what are we blind to now? What, are we, what we cannot see, what can we not hear? Give us a sense of what you think the importance of this element is, given what the world has just gone through since June of 2013 with the Daesh group, and now with what I'm told is the resurgence of Al-Qaeda and other groups and other actors out there, and certainly... You know, not just relegated to terrorism. Um, You've got other actors out there as well, nation states too. So give us a sense of just how important a time period, how pivotal the moment that we're in right now is. Well, boy, that's a hard, that's a big question. I mean, I I think you don't, look, I am not sitting in the center of the national security apparatus in the government right now, so I probably don't have the best bird's eye view for all of that. But I think if you just look at the newspaper every day, the threats are are multifaceted. You've got WMD threats, terrorist threats, you've got, uh, you know, um, espionage threats. There's a very complicated um, diplomatic, you know, environment all around the world. And, uh, you know, those are all reasons why we need good intelligence and why we need this tool. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious for the layperson, you have to obviously treat the people that you're briefing on the Hill and everywhere else you go essentially the same way, you know, give them a certain amount of respect for what their position is. But as you mentioned, this is a very complicated issue. So I'm very curious as to how you start this conversation with them. Give us a little sketch of what you do when you begin this conversation with those folks. Well, I can't give you one sketch because it depends on where the person's coming from, right? I mean, some, some people understand the program very well and may have specific questions. Others have no idea what it is. They might think it's the 215 program. You know, and others are, 
you know, some are some are hostile, and and um, you know that may some come from hostile. yeah, some and and some of them may that may come from a place of educated understanding of the program, or it may come from a place of misunderstanding, and so it just it depends on on the member, and so I usually ask. You know, how do you want me to start? Should I start by explaining the program or should I start with a specific concern? And so uh, these conversations have been good. And I think even with members who uh, are sort of reflexively hostile at the beginning of the conversation, I think by the end, I think at least they're listening. I think hopefully they at least have a better understanding of the program. And I, you know, I'm hopeful that, uh, that we've changed some minds and that the, the votes here will go the way we need them to go. I'm still at a little bit of a loss as to why... 29 days before the end of the year, we're at this point, um, as critical well, as this is. You know, if you look back, and I, I don't mean to minimize the urgency because we have a real sense of urgency of getting this, this thing reauthorized before the end of the year. But if you look back every few years since the Patriot Act was first enacted in 2001, there have been sunsets. And every time it comes down to the wire, that is, I think, the nature of the legislative process. And so um, I don't think you should interpret this timing to mean that 702 is any more concerning than any previous program, but it unfortunately is, is the nature of it. But, it, you know, we can't risk expiration, and so we are really pushing to get this done as soon as we possibly can. Does the version of what you're pushing now give you any better tools or greater um, opportunities? Does it improve your abilities? I think the answer is no, although we're still looking at the, you know, the, the version that the various bills that are pending in Congress and this is kind of a shifting target. We're really focused on preserving the tool and preserving it in a way that doesn't have amendments that diminish its effectiveness. There have been a lot of well-intentioned um, amendments that are intended to protect privacy but have really significant operational impacts that would really diminish the effectiveness. So we're really focused on getting the bill reauthorized without those kinds of amendments. So we're not, this is not a situation where we're looking for enhanced authorities. We're, we're intent on preserving this authority. How much of your day is spent on this issue? Quite a bit lately. And, and let me just tell you, you know, as, as Associate AG, national security issues are not really in my bailiwick, right? I'm focused on all the civil litigation of the department and lots of other things. But because of my background with 702 from my time on, on the P Club, the AG asked me to spearhead our reauthorization effort. And I have spent a lot of time on this. I will drop just about everything else to go up to the Hill, talk to a member, to talk to the Bureau about their concerns about a provision, uh, to talk to the press, to do whatever we need to do to get it done, because it is by far our top national security priority on the Hill this year. So this is an everyday thing for me. Frustration sometimes? No. Well, no, because I've spent enough time with these issues. Like in the Bush administration, I headed the legal policy division here at DOJ and spent a lot of time on FISA issues very similar to this. Spent almost five years on the P Club. I've had these kinds of conversations now for years, and so I'm beyond a place of being frustrated when someone else doesn't understand the rules, and I think it's my job to help them understand how the program really works and try to answer their questions and assuage their concerns. So, no, I, I, I relish it. I, I enjoy these conversations, even with folks that are hostile, I think, you know, it's important for us to have these conversations and try to get find common ground with folks. All right. Last thing. Why would a warrant requirement, how would a warrant requirement indi- impact 702 the, or the ability to use it? Well, one of the proposals that have been floated in some of the bills are, is to require the FBI to have a warrant before it can do a query of the information that has already been lawfully collected under Section 702. 
A query is just a technical term for the FBI doing a quick search of the information it already has in its database. The reason that a warrant requirement would be problematic is if you think about it, a query is done at a very early stage of the investigation. Say the FBI gets a tip from somebody at a truck rental counter that the person about to rent the truck is acting suspicious and they think, oh, I'm going to see something, say something, call it in. The FBI has no idea at that point if it's a real thing, if it's just got some sketchy guy at the truck rental counter, they, they don't know what it is. And so one of the first things they're going to do is do a quick query. And if there happens to be a hit in, on the 702 information in their database, and it shows that this person's in contact with ISIS and they're renting a truck now in Manhattan, that could be a really important thing to know. If you put a warrant requirement in, the FBI agent will not do the query because they don't have probable cause at that point. They could never get a judge to give them a warrant under those circumstances. And so it would be back to pre-9-11 information sharing barriers that the 9-11 Commission told us contributed to our failure to, to locate a couple of the hijackers before. So we, we don't want to go back to that, to those well-intentioned but really operationally problematic rules that we had pre-9-11. We want the FBI to be able to, to connect the dots right away during a potentially fast-moving investigation. Rachel Brand, Associate Attorney General at the Justice Department. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That interview took place on December 1st, 2017. Ten days later, Akayed Ula tried to blow himself and others up in a tunnel under the New York Port Authority. There are reports he may have had contact with radical elements in his native Bangladesh. It's not clear, and we may not know for a long time, if ever, if Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act played any role in helping authorities determine who his contacts were. But the incident shines a bright light on DOJ's interest in the reauthorization of Section 702. The Transportation Security Administration has... It also highlights the tremendous risk that the U.S. transportation system faces. And coming up... In our next episode, top U.S. government officials responsible for securing aviation and ground transportation join us on Target USA to discuss the risks, the solutions, and what it all means for you. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Please subscribe to our podcast, and also let me know what you think. Send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at wtop.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hi, this is Ben Dominich, the host of the Federalist Radio Hour. We're a daily show coming to you five days a week from Washington, D.C., where we interview our nation's top journalists, politicians, authors, chefs, economists, entertainers, and more. If you're looking for a contrarian discussion on news, politics, or culture, give us a listen and subscribe at podcastone.com, the new Podcast One app, or at Apple Podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.